All right. So as a follow-up to the, the larger amount of information we covered last week in the first in the series, the training variables, this one, this time we're going to break things down. Anybody watching this, if you did not watch last week's, I would definitely suggest you do because we cover a great survey, a great overview of all of the training variables that you should be considering when you're, you're designing your own training programming or just trying to assess uh, if you're having something put together for you, is this really hitting all the markers I need it to? Um, I, I just arbitrarily picked frequency because I, I mean, these are all so interwoven. It's hard to talk about one without all of the other ones. And as you'll see, when you talk about frequency, then you have to describe volume and load, you know, how much weight you're going to use, how heavy are you going, how deep into perceived exertion are you going, tr true failure, um, and all that kind of stuff. But I do think, as we talked about maybe these from those different angles, you'll, you'll definitely see how things fit together. Um, I used a lot of Brad Schoenfeld's meta-analysis last week to kind of cover how if you change this, then you might want to change this other variable in this direction. But this week, we're going to solely look at frequency. So how many times a week are you training that body part? And uh, very specifically, th this is what I really wanted. And I was happy to find this exact study. This, this is a very small meta-analysis, small for two reasons. There's just not a lot of research on this specific topic. And they really wanted to, to stay current. They wanted to see what the latest, greatest, which I'll explain here in a second. But this is the effectiveness of frequency-based resistance training protocols on muscular performance and hypertrophy in trained males. Um, I'm not sure there's that much difference in you know male and female when it comes to this. Uh, of course, on the metabolic disruption side of things, hormonal response and testosterone and all that. Um, but regardless, there are so many differences in male and females within their own genders and turning or, or their own sexes in, in, in just like size. You know, I'm 180 pounds. Somebody could be 400 pounds. Somebody could be 132 pounds. I have a, a male client right now who's in the upper 120s. So it, I, I just I just don't think that's that significant. But what really, really is key is the trained part because the, the, the bane of trying to get good exercise science research is often finding subjects that aren't just hanging around a college university or a, a, a university because that's where a lot of this research is going on. And so you find typically a lot of young people who haven't been training that long. And it's also very difficult in this kind of research to, to do long studies. Um, you're just you're just not going to see people hanging around for six and 12 months doing a very specific training protocol. I, I do think in the future, and maybe some people are starting to do this, it would be phenomenal if we started some long-term longitudinal studies. Here's how these people have trained for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and here's what we can survey based on that, on the way they trained. Another thing that's very difficult is, is how you collect data. Um, I have never allowed somebody to do muscle biopsies on me because it looks freaking painful. You're literally putting like a straw-sized needle in your quad or your tricep or your bicep to pull out this, and that's an injury. I mean, you're, you're literally saying, yeah, for the sake of science, 
I'm willing to, you know, take out that much cross-sectional, you know, meat out of my body. And um, it's just crazy. So uh, you're doing ultrasound studies, you're doing things like just measuring strength, anthropometrically measuring circumference with an ultrasound, maybe a little bit more detail in muscle growth and so forth. So there, there's certainly some margin for error, but as you see comparatively, these studies do point to very solid trends. So this group, uh, and you can see this was published at least in this, it was published in Human Kinetics originally um, done in the Journal of Sports Rehabilitation in 2020. And they they very specifically wanted to look at things from the, the previous five years. So I'll get to the inclusion criteria in a minute. This is actually a very short presentation. I only have 10 or 12 slides, but it is a little narrative heavy since it's a meta-analysis. So hang with me as I read some of this, but this is one that I really want to read every word because I only selected what's important. So resistance training is a common, well-accepted method for the development of muscular strength, power, and hypertrophy. Numerous studies have been undertaken to provide insight into the differences between frequency of training, number of muscle groups exercised, training volume, rest intervals, and velocity of the weight being lifted. Although many of these studies have focused on untrained or novice recreational athletes. In the untrained or novice subject, resistance training can produce substantial gains in a short period of exposure to a training protocol. Studies have shown that a great deal of muscle growth occurs in the initial weeks of training, primarily in neural adaptations, but also in muscle hypertrophy. As the muscle begins to adapt to resistance training, muscle growth attenuates as it becomes difficult to provide a more effective stimulus to increase muscle growth. This is the paradigm that the well-trained subject must overcome to obtain significant training improvements. So later on, I'm going to show you a slide and, and I'm going to add to uh, it a little bit here in that most experts have shown that about two thirds, listen to this statement very carefully, about two thirds of the hypertrophy that you will ever get from a muscle happens in the initial weeks of training, weeks. I, I have read other studies where about 90 to 95% of all the muscle hypertrophy you're ever going to gain happens in the first year of training. Now, I've shown in many, many uh, presentations, pictures of competitive bodybuilders, powerlifters uh, throughout various points of their career, people who have had some longevity in their careers. And I have shown photos of a bodybuilder you know, at, at this stage and then 20 or 30 years later. And in part of the, the trick, so to speak, of me presenting this is I will always ask the audience, how much muscle do you think they gain? This is so-and-so at this point. This is so-and-so 20 years later. Photos at about the same body composition, you know, usually pretty lean, stage ready, so you can compare more easily. And everybody can see tremendous progress. They, you know, even myself, if, if I showed you pictures, which again, I have done in presentations of myself at my very first bodybuilding contest and myself at the very last bodybuilding contest I did 20 years later, I've had people guess as high as 30 pounds. Oh, that's easily 30 pounds of muscle gain. And it looks like it. In my first bodybuilding contest, doing a rear lat spread, all you can see is ribs. Like you can literally count my ribs. That's how thin I was. And then I show them a picture from my my last contest, and 
again, 15, 20, 30 pounds of muscle is what people would say I gained. And they're always shocked when I say, no, I weighed 150 pounds in both photos. What you get is, is density and everybody loves the phrase muscle maturity. Um, you, you get shape change, the, the morphological way your body appears as, as you just train over time. And as we talked about last week, those sarcomeres and the actin myosin filaments are getting thicker. It just doesn't add up to a lot of gross weight or size. Your body certainly changes. You get strength gains that can go on for a long, long, long time. I didn't hit my top squat until I was in my mid-30s after 20 years of training and my top deadlift in my early 40s after 30 years of training. So there are a lot of things that happen with gaining strength and performance, You know, even in performance sports, but overall muscle mass, meaning weight and hypertrophy, is more visual than anything. But one of the things that they are describing here in that this is kind of the premise of, of why they wanted to do this meta-analysis. Besides that, besides the fact that it becomes harder for a trained athlete to gain muscle size and shape and so forth, um, even those neural adaptations, as they mentioned here, happen very, very quickly. So if you take a bunch of 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds or people who've just really never been in a gym, they just signed up for this study because they could make 100 bucks, uh, yeah, you're going to see massive changes in strength because of neural adaptation and, and you're on the front end of that learning curve. Uh, and that's just not the same as saying, hey, Marguerite, you've been training for 30 years. Like, what's, what's the best way for you to train? Well, the research on 18 and 24-year-olds is probably not going to be the same. So that's why they wanted to do this study. So let's get into what they actually looked at. Again, they just, for some reason, they wanted only the, the most current research possible. So for their inclusion criteria, only this five-year window. And I, they probably had a specific reason they didn't state. A lot of times it's because of certain testing methodology. You know, they just have better improvements in, in how they're measuring certain things. So a study done in 1980 may not be quite as, as relevant, um, but for whatever reason, that was part of their criteria. They had to have been published and peer-reviewed. They had to be randomized control trials, which is great, meaning um, you're really looking at a stimulus. It's a controlled experiment where you are saying, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to measure that. It's not um, you know, a survey or that kind of thing. They wanted to look at uh, and just the inclusion terms as they were scanning for these things, you know, resistance training, strength training, et cetera. They did end up looking, as you'll see here in a bit, uh, a little, uh, just a little bit, the, the difference between total body training and split routine. I think most of us are familiar with more split routine. You're doing an upper body pull day or a push day or legs or chest, shoulders and tries versus every day, just training your whole body, you know, whatever you're your goal is you're training the, the, the same way all the, the way through. Not very many people do that. Uh, the exclusion criteria, and this is just really kind of kind of neat in, in showing how science is done, but they wanted to exclude, you know, studies that were looking specifically at, at injuries or disease. Um, I don't know why they didn't want to look at females. Maybe that's just, um, you know, something that's, separate from what they wanted to see, maybe maybe just the availability. Uh, single exercise comparisons, they didn't want to say, hey, let's measure the bicep curl 
Uh, they wanted to see a, a smattering of, of comparatives. Uh, unequal training volume. So this was interesting uh, because they. Th this is also a little bit of a limitation. They wanted total training volume to be equated, which is, I think, a great first look at this kind of material. So if we're going to look at should you train once a week or twice a week or three times a week or four times a week for your quads or your glutes, like what's the best? They they wanted uh, volume equated, meaning you're going to do the same amount of work. It's just whether you're doing it in one day or two days or two days versus four days, but you're not doubling or tripling or quadrupling the total amount of work. The total amount of work per the week stays the same. And we'll kind of revisit why that was important in Schoenfeld's meta-analysis conclusions as we come up here. Um, so let's let's skip ahead here. So so out of all that, again, very, very specific, especially that five-year window, they only found six randomized control trials that met the criteria, and then they disqualified two more uh, for a couple of different reasons stated there. So they only ended up with four individual studies. And I have them listed down here at the bottom, uh, Gomes et al., Schoenfeld, Brigado, and you. Uh, each of them very, very different, and, and we'll do some comparing. But if if you, if you for some reason, anybody watching this, uh, I'm going to scoot back here. If you really wanted to see a total breakdown of how different those four studies were, again, look, look up this, you know, screenshot this or go back to our uh, playback on this. Um, Kensinger, Melton, Miyashita, and Ryan here from 2020. Um, that's where you'd want to look up. I, I could not include all of the graphics in this particular presentation, but um, th they really did a good job of breaking them down in chart form and showing each one of these four studies uh, per what they were looking at. Okay, so in, in just kind of the discussion, I'm gonna I'm gonna flow. Because again, they they really this was not a meta analysis where they did massive amounts of statistical analysis, at least in what they showed in this this journal. Uh, it, it's very much in, in narrative format. So I'm going to flow from kind of the introductory type remarks to their conclusion. But as asserted in one of the focused research articles, about two thirds of muscle growth occurs in the first weeks of resistance training. And through adaptive processes by the muscles, the rate of growth reduces. Those resistance-trained subjects who are well-trained may not provide the muscle with enough stimuli to increase muscle growth. However, it appears employing a training protocol with low frequency per week that increases the total volume per training session may produce body mass enhancements as well as, as, well as increases in strength, particularly upper body strength. You at all suggest that higher metabolic stress associated with high volume, low frequency protocol may represent the stimulus necessary to create an enhanced anabolic response by skeletal muscle. Increased volume routines have been associated with greater post-training increase in growth hormone and testosterone, accentuating the potential for muscle tissue remodeling. So what they're saying here is for those well-trained individuals somebody who's been in the gym for years. And I mentioned last week that some of the contemporary researchers, Schoenfeld gives kind of a nod to this in his textbook, basically saying, 
if you are a well-trained athlete, you may benefit from a little bit more volume, you know, per workout. Uh, but he still comes to a conclusion that I'll, I'll review here a little bit. Um, other people have said, you know what, those who are well, well, well trained to get the same kind of response that may either maintain that muscle mass and strength, or when periodized correctly, even continue to create advancements and growth. And, and even though you may not see that massive hypertrophy by volume weight, you still see it physically, visually, again, looking at comparative photos of people who've been training for 20, 30, 40 years, they are saying you need more work per workout to get the mechanical stress and the hormonal metabolic stress response. You need or you benefit from more work per workout, which means you then have to reduce frequency. So somebody like me, let's just say, you know, I've been training for 40 years. Let's just say I'm going to decide I'm, I'm really ramping up. I want the best results I could possibly get this year. So therefore I'm going to train every body part three times a week. And since we're going to equate for volume, that means I'm just going to come in. I'm going to do four sets of biceps on Monday, four sets on Wednesday, four sets on Friday, or maybe let's, let's go with something more compound. Maybe I'm going to do, um, you know, six total work sets on quads, Monday, six on Friday, six on, on Wednesday. Uh, would I get that much stimulus? Would that even get me to a point where I'm really feeling metabolic or, or mechanical stress? The answer is no. We saw that last week in our, in our big survey of this. It just doesn't happen. Cortisol, growth hormone, testosterone, it's not even touched until you really get into a workout where you are grinding through set after set after set after set. And, and some of those are warm-up sets, and then you're getting into your total work sets. You know, most people use that kind of, of nomenclature now. Um, you know, they will talk about total sets in a, in a workout or total work sets. It just kind of depends what part of the language they're using there. Um, but it's, you know, right off the bat, right from the jump here, they're basically saying, with our meta-analyses, you know, here's what we are concluding, that in well-trained athletes, which is our, our subject base, we are finding that, you know, more volume per workout is necessary. So I'm going to go on now with some of their, their thoughts. Previous research has explored modifications to training volume and frequency, but very few have studied the effects of training manipulation on well-trained subjects. This article, the articles reviewed in this CAT uh, reported frequency differences while controlling for volume, the number of exercises or the muscle groups trained. That's actually one of the reasons why they found so few um, studies. The volume had to be equated for in that study, but each study is very different. So in these four studies they reviewed, the volume week to week to week didn't change, but they may have done nine sets for two exercises in this study. They may have done 20 sets with six exercises in this study. And so they, they got to compare some variance there. Um, but the results from this appraisal support both the lower and higher frequency resistance training protocols for the development of muscle hypertrophy and other performance measures such as muscular strength. However, in three of the four studies, the groupings that were considered low frequency 
produced greater gains in both one repetition max bench press and one repetition max squats. The most important implication for practice is that well-trained, resistance-trained males can benefit from a lower training frequency per week, number of sessions per week, particularly if the volume per session is increased. Uh, just to, in case you weren't here for last week, uh, I'll, I'll repeat this. I have, and then last week I even showed you some pictures of my physique through my, my pro bodybuilding career. The best training I have ever done is when I have trained each body part once a week and even some compound movements only every other week. So staggering in micro cycles when I'm doing real strength work or real hypertrophy work. And so I showed you photos of how I got my squat up to 500 pounds and I was noted as having, you know, some of the best legs in the history of natural bodybuilding. Um, and I did that squatting once every two weeks, doing legs just once a week. And then I hired a, a very highly decorated powerlifting coach to train with me, like literally in my facility. This guy has personally had world records. He has won back-to-back -back national division one championships with powerlifting teams uh, in the, the you know, NCAA, I could go on and on and working with him for six months, my strength went down 20%. I went from being a 500 pound squatter to a 400 pound squatter. When I hired him to do the opposite, I wanted to get up to a 600 pound squat. And the only change he made was he quadrupled my frequency, actually doubled it. He, he doubled my frequency. We went from training legs once a week to training legs twice a week. But instead of squatting every other week, we squatted all four sessions. So, you know, four sessions in the same period of time I would normally have just squatted once. So we went with higher frequency. And the problem was we did not necessarily equate for volume or effort. It, and this is partly my fault because in backing off, um, or I should say, I, I don't have that gear. I don't have a slow down mode in my brain when it comes to training. So for me in particular, knowing that I am going to train harder than I think I'm training and harder than maybe some people are studied in, in research like this, I'm just going to very, very quickly overtrain. And so this is why this resonates with me. For people like me, trying to increase frequency when you're not very good at reducing effort or load is going to backfire. And so an awful lot of my clients over the years, when I reduce frequency, and it's a hard sell, trust me, nobody wants to train less. But when I gain their trust, they always say, wow, I cannot believe how much bigger and stronger I've gotten. I'm hitting PRs every week and I feel great. Like I'm always fresh. I'm not beat up and tired uh, in the gym all the time. And that's because you're, you're getting more recovery. So you can do this a couple of different ways. Uh, as the previous slide showed, everybody improved, everybody. And these are well-trained athletes. So, so everybody made progress in this study or in this meta-analysis over four studies but in three of the four studies, the people with less frequency actually increased in strength and hypertrophy more. 
Um, so here is their clinical bottom line. There is moderate to strong evidence to suggest that a lower frequency resistance training program when volume is equated will produce equal and in some instances, three out of four, greater improvements on muscular strength and hypertrophy in comparison to higher frequency resistance training. The evidence is particularly convincing when lower frequency training is combined with uh, total body training in well-trained subjects. So th this is actually, so going back to that discussion, very quick side note on total body, they said the evidence is particularly convincing when lower frequency is combined with total body. That is not saying that total body is a better way to train. That is saying that the more muscle tissue you are involving in a workout, total body, or even just compound movements like deadlift squats, et cetera, you definitely have to go low frequency. You can't do that every day. You can't train your whole body every day. You can't squat every day. You can't deadlift every day. So with, with total body training, you need those breaks in between. But again, let's just uh, focus on the, the, what they can very clearly say, which is that the, the lower frequency, and it's not just lower frequency, it's lower frequency with volume equated. So you're still getting the same amount of work. You're just piling it into one deep, thorough, good workout. Then you get to move on. And here's the trick. And, and I, I've been doing this since I was 15 and 16 years old and really consuming as much information as I could and, and really getting interested in my own training. It Like we talked about last week, when you look at the biomechanics in the exercises that you choose, the functional anatomy, the way that you're loading muscle tissue, you can, you, you can look at it both ways. You can train a little bit more often as long as you're training and emphasizing different parts of muscle tissue with different movements. So you're not quite overtraining with, with that degree of risk. Uh, or you can look at it as uh, one of the things that they said you, you just get that extra time to recover and then your next workouts are even more effective knowing that you always have overlap. Um, you know, I, I did a, a leg workout this week that I, I did not do Romanian deadlifts or stiff-legged deadlifts. And part of that, I did just hamstring curls with my leg pressing and uh, weighted lunges, Bulg Bulgarian split squats, leg extensions, that kind of thing. Because three days earlier, I had done conventional deadlifts and I was really, so it's a very effective workout. So my hams and glutes were already crushed. And then three or four days later, I'm doing legs again, where my hams and glutes are getting worked, not quite as directly. So they really got worked twice, um, e even though it wasn't directly a hamstring glute workout or a total leg workout. You guys know from last week that for example, when you're doing any kind of chest pressing movement, the front of your delt fibers, if you look at those sarcomeres and what's happening between those Z lines, you couldn't train the front half of your delts any harder than when you're training chest. So if you're doing chest work one day and then three or four days later, you're doing delts, your delts are getting worked twice already, even though it's not quote two shoulder workouts. Same thing on the backside of your, your delts with, with rows and back movement. Uh, anytime you're doing any pushing movement, you're, you're using your tries. And even though you're not doing a full isolated elbow extension, it's still work. So I, I think most people in their, in their training, 
even if they set up a design to work each body part once a week directly, you're getting one direct and one indirect workout. You are literally training those muscle groups twice a week already. So if you try to then say, well, I really want to have two chest days, two glute days, two delt days. Now you're, you're going to four times a week because now you're hitting them both directly twice and indirectly twice. That's where shit just starts breaking down. Like that's a massive jump in frequency. And the, the amount of clients I have with, you know, elbow, shoulder, knee, tendonitis type issues, soreness all the time. It's not just lack of performance and getting your next great workout. It's, it's literal injury. Um, that's the fastest way to, to start falling behind. Okay. This, this is tough to see because I had to really reduce it down. This is when, when I said that this particular meta-analysis had really great comparative side-by-side -side, uh, information between these four studies. There are four or six, five, five or six pages of this. And I just went to the conclusion. Um, but again, it, it's interesting just to see, you know, how the different studies were done in a meta-analysis. That's what you're really looking for is comparing each one of these studies to each other. Cause there are limitations, strengths, and weaknesses to each. So let's see what they all did lined up with different criteria. And then we'll try to sum all of, of what we can learn. So one particular study, th th here's their conclusions. And again, I didn't want to get into all the details of every study. So you could look that up if you want. Uh, one study concluded that training a muscle group once a week, only once a week, is as efficient as training it twice a week. Um, so to promote an increase in maximum strength, lower body muscular endurance, and muscle size. So their conclusion was just simply, you're going to get the same results. Train once a week or same train twice a week. That's great. Volume is equated. Remember, you're doing the same amount of work per week. So whatever you choose to do, if you want to be in the gym twice doing legs and you're going to do 10 sets twice, great. If you want to do 20 sets once, great. It's going to be the same. Um, but again, I would always challenge people to try them, see how you recover, see if you get a little bit more out of that higher volume work in that one session, because as a well-trained individual, I think that's a big deal. That's why three out of four of these studies showed actual greater progress with lower frequency. Uh, one of the other studies showed that eight weeks of, um, High frequency training increased muscle size and strength similarly to low frequency in well-trained. So again, a repeat, you know, they were the same. Then Schoenfeld, the, the, the findings suggest uh, by hypertrophy, which is his big interest, um, that higher frequency is training when volume is equated. Data also suggest well-trained individuals would be would benefit from training muscle groups um, three days a week when the goal is to maximize muscle hypertrophy. So this is where Schoenfeld leans. And as I looked through his study, I mean, he, he also says that, that he believes twice a week, you'll see a quote from him coming up, that he thinks the best is, is twice a week. So with volume equated, instead of once, he, he prefers going twice. And that's why he even, as I said, gives a nod to the fact that in super, super, super well-trained individuals, they may find lower frequency works better. Um, I, I just kind of disagree with Brad on this point, uh, especially in well-trained individuals. I think if you are trying to train two to three days a week, um, which again, you can, but but it's not going to be very intense. 
Um, remember that I used uh, a coach of mine as an example, who is an IFBB pro in, in our survey research review last week, in the fact that he decided I'm going to really try to get my shoulders to grow. So I'm going to train them four days a week. Well, training shoulders four days a week means just different angles, different laterals, cable laterals, dumbbell laterals. It's not like he was doing heavy barbell push pressing four times a week. Uh, that would just lead to all kinds of shoulder joint issues in overtraining. But did he have a favorable response? He says he did. He genetically has phenomenal shoulders. His chest and shoulders are just to die for as a male physique competitor. Uh, so did he genetically have the predisposition to handle a little more volume? Sure. Um, obviously he hit a sweet spot between total volume frequency and intensity. But I, I think again, even those things can be, can be good experiments in short bursts. I've often told clients, you know, you have this particular body part that you want to prioritize. You consider it a weakness. Sure. Let's add an extra day there. I have plenty of protocols for clients where uh, for bikini competitors, we are training delts and glutes three or four times a week, but different angles, different exercises in only one of those is, is the heaviest direct work. Only one of those days would be heavy conventional deadlifts or Romanian deadlifts or super heavy, um, you know, hip thrusts, that kind of thing. There are a lot of other things that just don't take a lot of energy. You get direct muscle stimulation, um, but you're just not getting that that kind of mechanical or metabolic distress that would cause the, the need for for massive recovery. So it's kind of like the you know tap 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 approach. You know you can take a you can put a nail through a board with a sledgehammer with one swing, or you can you know tap 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 tap. If you're going to choose higher frequency, you really have to be cautious of of that kind of overtraining. So then the last one. This is the one that, again, I resonate with a little bit more. Uh, you at all said using a high and low weekly training frequency with equated volume is effective in improving fat-free mass and performance in um, recreationally, I think that says, resistance-trained individuals. Furthermore, the study suggests that higher volume um, sessions neither increased. Let's see if I'm, I can't read that. Rather than, yeah, rather than increased frequency. Gotcha. So, so, so this gets back into yes. This was their whole conclusion, was that it was better for those well-trained individuals to have uh, less frequency if they were increasing the volume appropriately. There. So again, equated for volume. Thank you. There. Uh, you must have a, a better screen than I do, Marguerite. <laughs> uh, and so then let's let's get into some of the limitations that they described. Uh, and, and I thought they were very fair with this. The wide range of exercises caused some limitations for direct comparison between each of the studies. Even though volume was constant within all studies, the volume between studies varied greatly due to the number of exercises prescribed. Finally, another limitation was the training frequency range from a minimum of two sessions per week found in two studies uh, to one study, which had five training sessions per week. Uh, Meta-analytical data have shown that training a muscle group two times per week in well-trained individuals produced the highest effect size. So here's where they were leaning on Schoenfeld's, this is, you know, they cited him here, 
if you look up those citations. Um, so meta-analytical data outside of the meta-analysis they're doing here have shown training a muscle group two times a week in well-trained individuals produced the highest effect size. Uh, again, kind of depends on total load and total perceived exertion and intensity. Um, but I, I think this is where I'm going to make one point to just say I'm not going to completely discount it, but it's interesting that they contradict themselves here. And maybe that was intentional. Maybe this, maybe they're not putting this in here as a point of clarity. Maybe they're showing that we in our five-year window with our inclusion and exclusion criteria, we found this less frequency, more volume in one session, meaning more so, you know, that one particular great workout session. Uh, but then they were saying other meta-analyses have shown that two times a week is okay. And I, I would not completely disagree with that as long as, like I said, one of those workouts, and, and I'm pretty sure Brad discussed this in his textbook as well, just in his own narration, is that you don't necessarily want to repeat the exact same workouts twice. You want some different biomechanical advantages and perspectives, different exercises, but even the intent of that workout, you're probably not going to do your heaviest squats twice a week. Maybe it's heavy squats and then a second leg workout. It's a little more hamstring and leg press dominant or something like that. Maybe you're working on a little more volume and glycolytic energy system instead of just anaerobic. All the variables we talked about last week. Um, that That's just a non-negotiable to me. If you're going to train the same body part twice a week directly, it's going to have to have differences like that, or, or you're, you're just, you're just going to have problems recovering. What, one last thing, just to review some of the variables we talked about last week, the big difference as we're describing well-trained individuals, you could back all the way up to novice beginning or even injured athletes with my, you know, I have, a partially torn bicep, torn subscapularis and torn pec right now. Right. So a month ago I was literally just carrying my arm around like this and, um, couldn't do anything. It was full rest. And then I'm starting to do some range of motion. I'm making sure as things are healing, I'm not getting, um, you know, things in a position where it's just, I'm not going to have the mobility I need. And then all of a sudden it was indirect work the muscle tissue that wasn't injured, I can work. And so there's reciprocal inhibition going on in the joint. And so the nervous system is engaging and disengaging even the affected tissue. And now um, I'm, I'm up to doing, you know, pretty much everything except direct chest work. But even within a week or two, I was doing bench press with dumbbells where I could have a, you know, up to a 50 pound dumbbell in my unaffected arm. And I was just bench pressing my arm with the injured arm. So it was a 50 in one hand, nothing in the other. And I'm bench pressing. I'm going through that motion. I was doing that four to five times a week. So for a guy who says in well-trained individuals, and I count myself as well-trained, um, you know, you should only train once a week or maybe twice a week with that caveat of pretty direct and then maybe not quite as hard in some of these variables. So why all of a sudden would I be okay training four or five or six days a week? Because I'm literally using no load. Like even in my unaffected side, 
if I'm used to bench pressing a hundred pound dumbbell on both arms, even a 50 pound dumbbell on my left is just to me, quote, exercise. That's not training. That's not, that's not affecting a high need to recover. Um, and, and, you know, throughout all the other upper body movements, I was just doing what I could to maintain uh, the stimulus I wanted for the rehabilitation of my right side, and then trying just not to lose strength or hypertrophy on my left. Now, so consider that kind of a newbie, you know, even, even on the other side of that injured with lighter load, less effort, you can do more frequency. You can do more volume as load starts increasing as intensity or perceived uh, effort starts increasing. Now you start getting into the higher need for recovery. So that that's why these variables are on a sliding scale. So getting close to the end here. Uh, all protocols included exercises that targeted major muscle groups for the development of strength and hypertrophy, although the variability in the number and type of exercises selected was so varied that determining the most effective exercise grouping cannot be made in the study or, or from these studies. So that's kind of a limitation that they admit they can't give you a perfect protocol. Further research should include a comparison of split routine to total body protocols, including the same exercises, with the number of exercises closer to that of Schoenfeld et al., which utilized 21 distinct exercises. The use of a great number of exercises would ensure that, that the muscles would be activated for the greatest potential of muscular strength development and hypertrophy. Further research should also investigate how a lower frequency total body protocol may be compared with a higher frequency split routine uh, in college athletes where time constraints due to schedule and college time contact rules may affect training. Um, so I'm not sure we need to spend a lot of time talking about that point, but just to make sure that I explain it, um, lower frequency total body workouts uh, for college athletes. Because in classic periodization, and I run into this, I always have a couple of young athletes that I'm working with. I mean, they've got games, they've got practices, they've got team training on top of what you may be trying to induce with them privately. And so you just, you, you can't have this carte blanche, perfect protocol where it's like, okay, here's how many days we're going to train and this is what we're going to do their sports specific work is getting in the way. And so you have to be very efficient and economical. And so this is just one application of that. If you can do some total body, when I've trained with, and I've, I've seen pro teams, um, the Boston Celtics, the LA Lakers and so forth, have been involved in their team training. I mean, they're literally just almost like a high school gym class. It's like, you know, everybody's going to do four sets of squats, four sets of bench, four sets of this. And they're just rolling them through. You've got your little chart. Okay. LeBron, you're up to doing this weight, this many reps, you know, that the team trainer has that information and it's basically for maintenance and, and they will do a whole body workout, but it's not to have the highest bench press. It's not to have the biggest legs. It's not to look good on a bodybuilding stage. It's literally for strength in their position dependent sport specific realm. Um, so that's where this kind of research can have that application that for those athletes the you know, the fact that you can get the same amount of result with lower frequency that matters because they can't train all the time. Those of us who love to be in the gym and you want to just live in the gym, then 
great. You know, you can train a body part two or three times a week. You'll get the same result if you train it once a week. But if you love to be in the gym two or three times a week for each body part, you just really have to equate volume like they did in this meta-analysis. All right. Again, super, super specific. Um, probably should have even taken a full 45 minutes on this one. But I, I thought out of all of the variables we discussed last week in that, in that big survey, frequency can maybe be that hub where the other ones orbit. And then you can see how they all do work together. But any, uh, any thoughts or questions? Didn't see Heather sneak in here. Margarita. I'll jump in, sure. Um, I guess as you were going through, I was trying to think of what some of the other factors might have been to contribute to the hypertrophy that they may have seen and been able to, to measure or compare. Um, and one thing that jumped into mind was diet, of course. And then that brought me back to the beginning where I was thinking, okay, that might have been why no females were included because if you take the male population you're more likely to find a lot more guys in either maintenance or a bit of a surplus to kind of affect those muscle changes that you're looking to measure as opposed to the female population that's always dieting or something and you might not have have seen that so that was my thought as to maybe why we didn't see uh, too much of a female or any female inclusion there. Um, and obviously the testosterone response after a, a training session is so much higher for males. So, you know, the hormonal response factors in as well. Um, it would have been interesting to compare female to female if they could have. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. Um, a couple comments. It's interesting on the frequency and the volume, because since training with my trainer, the volume has increased substantially. And I had someone come up, uh, another trainer in the gym actually come up to me yesterday and mentioned that their client was commenting on how much my body has changed in the gym. Um, I don't see it, of course, but my genes see it um, and it doesn't show on the scale, but um, the volume had increased significantly compared to what I was doing before. And now that I think about it, one of the best responses that I ever got was a three day a week push pull leg. So one day push, one day pull, one day leg. I hated it because it was only three days of training and I would like to train every single day hated it but the volume on each day it was grueling to get through each one but that's the best result you know barring what i'm doing now that i've gotten in my training that to me what you described is the perfect center template um if somebody especially is in an off season where to your point about diet they are eating well enough to recover fully and so forth the results I mentioned, a 500-pound deadlift, 400-pound squat, all or 500-pound deadlift and squat, um, those were all training like that three days a week where I had a full 48 hours before I'm even touching a weight. And then when you get into a, a calorie deficit in your workouts, you can't quite 
sustain as much workout per or volume per workout, then adding that extra day in like that can be beneficial. Uh, so I, I love that you have noted that because that's what I try to get all of my clients to do at some point and they fight me tooth and nail. Um, the other thing that you said about the women, I, I honestly just don't know. I, um, I think sometimes, especially because a lot of this research is done on college campuses, there aren't as many women who just want to go sign up for a study to squat and bench and yeah. lift weights for eight weeks. Um, they, they do in, in studies that are exercise science specific and not about nutrition and weight loss. You're right. They don't have phenomenal controls, but they usually have instructions like don't change your diet, try to eat consistently, or maybe they'll even give them some general advice. Like we really want you guys to do this. This would help the study out. If you can maintain this consistency, of course, it's not going to be perfect, but they just have to trust that within the subject base, 20 subjects, 40 subjects, there are going to be some highs, some lows, some outliers, but at least the average is going to hold up between the control group and the study group. Right. But yeah, I do. I mean, it's funny here. We have all women on this call and, you know, they don't care about doing research like this for women, just men. Uh, I, I really do think though, that it's, it would hold up the same. I, yeah. Some of the, some of the differences between sexes in how we lift and so forth, anatomical differences, um, but I don't know. I mean, I know some, I, I'm not going to say that men train harder, that may, that there's any advantage here. I, I mean, quite the opposite sometimes, you know, look at pain threshold and all that. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe that's a, a research review later down the road. We'll look at some very specific sex role. Yeah. Yeah. I just, the, the other thing that pops into my mind too, is during my internship with my athletes, all of the girls were dieting. Mm. They were desperately diet. They were drastically dieting. Yeah. And it was a recoil from a lot of other stuff. But anyway, it, it was a disaster. But um, but I think the response would be the same as well. Um, but anyway, that's, you know, neither here nor there. I, I would say in my client demographic, um, there are more females who are just not as interested in training super heavy or super hard. You mm -hmm. know, they're not going for those max deadlifts and so forth. It's how many days a week can I train my, my delts and my glutes? Yeah. Um, and they're, they, they tend to just go for the feel a little bit more. Like they're okay using just a five pound dumbbell for laterals, but you know, they'll do hundred rep sets and they love, they, they equate the feeling, the burn, et cetera. Whereas guys are typically more like how much is on the bar, how much. Can right. I so that's where I think some women may, may just be able to withstand a little bit more frequency because they're not just destroying their bodies quite as much to their favor and advantage. Yeah. But again, even that may be, you know, not true. Uh, and I certainly don't want to sound sexist in that, but I just see that in my my, my client population, that's a little bit more true. Good. Any, any other thoughts, uh, Heather, you jumping in? If were you guys you, can hear me in my bunker. Were you here the whole time? I didn't see you until the very end. That, yeah, no, yeah. I had a patient. Um, but what I see here, I have a lot of high endurance athletes. And I mean, people who I would argue are probably already overtraining 
but they have mechanical breakdown at some point. And so I'm, I'm trying to decide because I don't want to add more volume when they're already like, some of them are ultra marathoners. I had a guy last weekend went to North Carolina for like a family vacation and went on a 19 mile run and a 12 mile run in the mountains. Hmm. And so it's like, when I'm trying to, even just from a rehab perspective, I need him to stop catabolizing. He can't even eat enough to keep up with it. But I also need him to have the movement patterns that will mitigate these frequent injuries that pop up because he doesn't have the hip stability. So am I potentially better off doing like five by five and get out of there? Or do I stick with body weight? Like, do I even want to load him? And I think I kind of am just curious for your guys' perspective based on some of this research. Yeah, for the example you just gave, like the five by five, like low volume, maybe even low frequency, kind of like that college athlete model, get the stimulus, because clearly somebody training, I mean, 12 and 19 mile runs, they're not going to gain muscle. You're you're really trying to keep a stimulus to maintain bone mass and muscle strength and, and fiber integrity, because um, he's going to have to wind some of that that endurance work down if he wants to work on strength and hypertrophy. It's just, it, you're just not going to make it in both worlds. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, to be honest, that's interestingly, ironically, uh, a place I'm kind of going with my training right now is going back into more martial arts. I, I want to maintain size and strength and all that, but it's different. It's different to say, okay, my my goal for progress in new attainments is over here in functionality, striking strength, that kind of thing, not how much I can deadlift and bench. And so it's like, I'm going to get all those other lifts in and they're going to be meaningful. They're going to maintain, but it's so I can go back over here and do this kind of training. And even in the same way. So I was in our kickboxing gym across the street uh, today working out. And it was like, okay, I'm going to do, you know, 10 tie kicks on each side and some of these punching drills. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to go do a set of abs and some rows because they have some weights. And so I'm literally getting in just what I need to maintain strength and hypertrophy, especially as I rehab this arm. Um, but it was all about the the kicks and the punches and the, the form with my other training. So for a guy like that, that's what I would say. Like your training is just going to be to maybe eke out a little extra strength where we can, but until you're willing to not run as much, then that that's all we got. Good. Good question. Good to see you, by the way. Um, Amy, um, where's the, there's Becky. Any, any thoughts or questions? You guys good to go. Pretty, pretty straightforward today. Um, I don't plan on spending a lot of time in this particular genre, but at the same time, if, if I can find things that are really, really interesting and I will definitely look for something that's a little bit more female oriented next time. Um, we'll, we'll see if we can at least hit the best highlights and then get into something more nutrition based again, but good to see you guys. Hope you have a great rest of your Friday and weekend and we'll see you next week.